Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We're fired up to be back with all of you after a week or two off. And while we'd like to think you were hanging around waiting for our next interviews, the last few weeks have been pretty wild rides. So like us, we're sure you were all plenty distracted. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Mike Byrne, the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Private Equity and Debt in North America for AEW, a nearly $100 billion global real estate investment manager with over 830 employees across 18 offices. This is a really fun one for us. We've, we've known Mike since he was a, a local hockey standout in the South Shore Kings and then later at Dartmouth College, and he's someone that we've always looked up to. As we'll discuss today, Mike is responsible for overseeing all of AEW's commingled funds separate accounts, and direct investments in North America. In this capacity, he's responsible for the strategic direction and oversight of the firm's portfolio management, acquisitions, capital markets, and asset management functions, in addition to managerial responsibility of the private equity group. Mike also serves on AEW's Investment Committee, Risk Management Committee, and Governance Committee in North America, and he's a member of AEW's Global Investment Committee. We'll also hear a bit about his career prior to joining AEW, including as a member of the real estate team at the Massachusetts Pension Reserve Investment Management Board, also known as Mass Prim, managing the pension fund's real estate investments and timber portfolios, and a career that he started as a, as a grunt iBanking analyst at Citigroup in New York. We think you'll really enjoy Mike's insights into everything from equity and debt strategies across the risk spectrum, thematic investing into various alternative sectors, to cultivating culture and emphasizing professional growth at AEW. We also touch on some deal highlights and Mike's view of market opportunities in 2023. On a side note, I'll be moderating a panel on May 24th at BizNow's Boston Healthcare Real Estate Summit. We'll be speaking with a number of market leaders, including Mike Burns' AEW colleague, Jennifer Wong, one of the firm's key players in AEW's penetration of the national medical office market. I hope some of our listeners will join us. The event link is in the show notes, and we look forward to seeing you there. Without further ado our conversation with Mike Byrne of AEW. All right, welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we're very excited to have with us in the Newmark offices, Mike Byrne. Mike is a chief investment officer at AEW and the head of the firm's North American investment business. Mike, thanks for being here. Okay, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Mike, just to put this in a perspective for our audience, I think everyone in the business knows AEW to some extent, but AEW has gone through an incredible period of growth over the past 20 years. Today, almost $100 billion under management, 830 employees across 18 offices, and I think that number may be growing. Could you just give it an overview? You sit in a seat where you have a great perspective of the entire program, the entire operation. So I'd love to hear from you about how you look at AEW today. Of course. The growth has been a fantastic thing to be a part of. And so you're right there. When I joined AEW, which was in 2003, 20 years ago this fall, I think we had something like five or $6 billion under management, two or three separate account clients and a couple of small funds and a securities business. We have all of that still today. But as you said, we managed close to $100 billion globally. And by the way, that business at the time was mostly a domestic business. Now we do have offices around the globe. We have about half of our assets equally split between Europe and the United States. And then our smallest but fastest growing region of the globe is in Asia Pacific. So we are in all three regions. It's been fantastic. That capital, and I should say all we do is real estate through equity strategies and through debt strategies. And we do it through a range of risk tolerances, core through opportunistic. And we do it through both diversified strategies where we make sector allocation and geographic allocation decisions. 
focused in a certain risk tolerance, like our core strategies or our opportunistic strategies. And we also do it through sector-specific strategies where we develop a high level of conviction on a certain theme and then either raise funds or products to invest in that. And so we've done that over the years in seniors housing. We've done it over the years in cold storage. We're actively thinking about strategies in the affordable and essential housing space today too. Great. Those are all things we want to go into in this conversation. And I think it's a great overview. If we could take a step back to sort of the beginning of your career, Tom and I had the benefit of knowing you when you were a young guy and a great athlete and great student. And then we actually went and saw you play hockey a few times when we were growing up because our father thought you were a great role model for us. But talk to us a little bit about sort of education and then into your, your first sort of career entry and how that all worked out. Sure. I mean, the more interesting podcast here would be about Steve Greeley Sr. and uh, Chris <laughs> Byrne and the South Shore Kings. We'll get them on eventually. Great coaching we'll staff. Together. That would be far more interesting than anything I'm going to say here. <laughs> so I graduated college in 2001, went to work for an investment bank in New York City, Solomon Smith Barney, which became Citigroup when I was there. And the time then was just post.com bubble, actually. So it wasn't a great time to be starting your first career, especially not in investment banking. And I was just a, you know, I had a history, I was a history major from Dartmouth College. So I had no relevant work experience to go be an investment banker. So anyway, I worked through the sort of the analyst training program there to start in the real estate group. The way I chose the real estate group actually was because I just wanted to keep a job and they weren't keeping all of the people they hired for the class. So everybody else wanted to be in media banking or technology banking or healthcare banking. And I just wanted to go where the path of least resistance was, which at the time was real estate. So I ended up in the real estate group. My first day in the group actually happened to be 9-11-2001. Wow, no kidding. So it was a it was a slow entry to the work world where everything just shut down for a and period. So you're in the city. We were moving from 7 World Trade to, to 388 Greenwich Street. We were training at 7 World Trade with the other analysts, and then we moved to 388 Greenwich Street to be wow. part of the actual no group. Kidding. It was a strange start to a career. And obviously that period of time defined the, the capital markets for a period of time. Right. And, and all the banking work we were doing was mostly just pitching and pitch books. I did pitch books for two years and then left New York to come back here and work for Mass Prem for a period of time. That was a pretty unique move to Mass Prem, but gave you probably a perspective that has served you well throughout your career. So how did you decide on that track and what led you to Mass Prem? The Prem decision was one of the best decisions I've made in my career. It was a short period of time I spent there, but it was really informative, and I still value that time today. It gives me a perspective, I think, that a lot of people that sit in my seat now or work for AEW would be lucky to have. The way I ended up there actually was I actually ended up on a pitch call when I was at the bank with a former neighbor of mine from Hingham, a guy named George Wilson, who was the head of the real estate and timber allocation. All great things start in the South Shore. I know. I'll actually can tell you a story about how I came to AEW in a minute. It actually happened at the town dump in Hingham. But Love it. So it's a great dump. Had, yeah. It's a really good dump for our listeners. <laughs> Hingham just has a great dump. Anyway, he was working on a plan, like a financing strategy for the real estate and timber allocations for Mass Prim, And I was just one of the analysts listening in on the call. I said, geez, I know that guy. I was his neighbor back in Hingham. With the goal of getting back to Boston, I called George to network. And he said, he basically offered me a job there and said, if you really want to be in real estate and you're not sure where, why don't you come here for a period of time? You'll develop an understanding that you won't get anywhere else around how capital is allocated. And, and you'll have a window into some of the best operators, developers, investment managers in the business. And so he was right. I spent two years there, almost two years. Before you continue on, for the listeners, I think we know Mass Prim a bit and we're in the Boston market. We see them on deals, on bid sheets, they tour assets. We, we know them a bit, but you know, maybe our listeners, it'd be helpful to know who is Mass Prim? What is that institution? What is that organization? 
Mass Prim Pension Reserve Investment Management is our is effectively our state pension plan. So it's investing pension dollars on behalf of public Massachusetts employees in a series of investment strategies. They have allocations to securities and fixed income and alternative investments, and they also make allocations to real estate investment managers. Right, got it. At the time, their allocation that I worked on was, and it was also the timber allocation as well, that where they invested into, was spread across a series of investment managers, mostly focused on core strategies. They have a great team there today. They've taken that plan in a really fantastic direction. And they're doing a lot more today than than what I had the benefit of overseeing 20 years ago. That's very cool. And as Mike said, that, that gives you some interesting perspective. And so for Mass Prim, what was the next step? How did you make that jump from there? The next step for me was to real estate investment management where I joined AEW. But what was really interesting, to just finish the thought on Prim for a second, is to understand what is important to the plan sponsors who are allocating capital, how they make decisions around risk and return, how they think about portfolio construction, how they think about underwriting investment managers. They see the best in the business come through every day, making pitches effectively for the services they provide. And I learned a lot about what it means to be relevant to your clients, what it means to be transparent and communicative with your clients, what it means to earn their trust and to retain their trust. And so that's a really big part of my own personal career path. And so joining AEW as an acquisitions analyst at the time, that was an experience, I think, and it provided me a level of insight that a lot of people that just came from a banking background or appraisal background or asset management background didn't have. And so when you were at Mass Prim, were you ever across the table from AEW pitching their services, their book to Mass Prim? Or you had assumedly reviewed some decks from AEW over the years as one of those investment managers who yeah, allocated AEW to. Was not a, uh, Prim was not a client of AEW. A- AEW then and now was was well regarded for its research prowess. Mike Acton, who's still our head of research today. Legend. Yeah, he is a legend. And complimented by another partner of his at the time, a guy named Doug Putas, who's also a legend. Yeah. We would go over and see Mike and Doug all the time to get their perspective on the market, a local mm-hmm. Boston-based firm. It was an easy trip across the channel here to right. uh, the seaport, which at that point was basically AEW Capital Management and a bunch of parking lots. And we should, we should point out that AEW was a pioneer in the seaport. I think we were the first tenant in two seaport lane, which I think was the first non-fidelity office building built over there. And at the time, AEW, so you were there for 20 years, and we'll talk a lot about that. At the time, how new of a firm was AEW, or was it pretty established at that point? Well, so that was what attracted me to AEW then. It was, it was, it was very well established. Um, but it also felt new and uh, and had a youthful energy that I really resonated with me at the time. I, I, you know, I went to I would see a lot of investment managers in that seat at Prim, and um, a lot of them were in old state office buildings with you know thick carpets and you know, <laughs> in deep mahogany walls. Yeah. And you would walk over to AEW in the early two thousands, and it felt like a tech company, right? With in this cool, unique space in the seaport. So it had a youthful energy, but it was over 20 years old at the time. And today, AEW is over 40 years old. So it has quite a bit of history. And I know you guys have talked to the, the AEW roster of alumni, either from Aldrich Eastman and Walsh or from Copley or from AEW itself is fairly large in this town. You've talked to some of them already. Yeah, totally. It's an incredible group of people. In general, when you arrived at AEW, you sort of had, you got the technical foundation, you know, in your banking sort of background and, and you went to Mass Prem, you saw sort of the allocation side of the business where the capital was actually coming from, which I think for you know a lot of people in this business, it, it takes five, 10 years to really appreciate where the dollars come from at the end of the day. So what a great foundation that was. You move over AW into an acquisitions analyst role and you were underwriting opportunities every day on behalf of AW's clients. What, what were those first two years like and how were you learning? And there was no shortage of mentors there. 
mentors is the right word. There was no better learning experience than sitting outside of Bob Plum's office for yeah. close to 20 Another years. Another legend. Yeah, total legend. And number one on the list of the mentors I would count in this world is Bob Plum. But that, that's what it was, right? We had a, an acquisition team that sat next to the asset management team, that sat next to the research group. All of the things that make up the AW ecosystem were right there for me in a smaller company than exists today, but effectively the same company. The opportunity for me then was that we had various pockets of capital to invest in various strategies, sector-specific or diversified, opportunistic or core, development or cash-flowing, you name it, equity or debt. Throughout market cycles, we were able to move and navigate with wherever the opportunity was. And as a young person looking for opportunity to learn and grow, there was literally nowhere better. And every day it was a different deal. Sometimes those deals stuck and you got to work on them from beginning to end and perform the full acquisition process. And sometimes... You killed him and moved on to another one. So I did that part of the job for, oh, I don't even remember, maybe 10 or 12 years. Yeah. And I think for AW, you mentioned Mike Lacton, really well-regarded research pro, sort of best in class, someone who, who everyone in the business goes to for the latest in data and trends. But AW, you sort of had a front row seat. The firm is developing different strategies and thinking about different types of clients and what part of the market to go after. You guys were one of the first to really go heavy into seniors housing, for example. But that that sort of innovation from a research perspective has allowed AW to you know outperform in large part. Was that always sort of a conscious effort from the day you got there? Did you notice that? Was that something that you were absorbing? Oh, of course. I mean, you, you certainly value it as soon as you see it. The part that's always resonated with me, and it starts with that global footprint, and it starts with the research footprint, is that we've been large enough and resourced enough to have a real global point of view to make decisions around capital allocation, tolerance, have an informed point of view around where we think sort of the macro environment exists, but small enough to be able to think locally and deploy strategies at the local level. You mentioned some of the sector-specific strategies that we've managed over the years. That's a great example of how we've done that. We're pretty good at organizing resources and pushing them against an idea. So we've done that over the years in seniors' housing, We've done that over the years in, in specific affordable housing. We're doing that now in the cold storage and temperature control warehouse space. We're obviously doing that now with regard to structured opportunities and debt. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time with your teams on medical office opportunities. You guys have done a great job penetrating that market as well, which we've enjoyed being a part of. Yeah. And, and on the multifamily side, we've spent a lot of time with your team. We talked to Paul Ketter on a regular basis, who we love. And this might be a good segue into some of those strategies across the risk spectrum from opportunistic to core. How do you invest across that spectrum? Where are you spending more time to today? And how has that changed over time? I was looking at the math just the other day to make sense of what we did over the last four or five years. And uh, usually this elicits an eye roll, but we were obviously focused in housing and industrial and healthcare strategies. That felt really competitive over the last several years. And if you would go to a conference or sit in a conference room and share that anecdote, people would just say, yeah, we've heard that from everybody. But I'll tell you what we're really proud of is actually talking about it and doing it are two totally different things. And if you look at where our book has shifted over the last several years, but 90% of what we've done have been in those three strategies. So wow. healthcare broadly defined is your space, Mike, and medical office and inclusive of life science too, and also inclusive of seniors housing, and then obviously industrial and then various housing strategies. We've really been focused in those strategies. We've been fairly disciplined in our effort to access those strategies. At the same time, we've been pretty disciplined around reducing exposure to places that we don't believe in so much. And obviously today that's the office market and mm -hmm. selected parts of the retail market. And on the housing side, just by personal experience, happen to be familiar with your workforce housing strategy. Talk to the, the listeners a little bit about that strategy. And I don't know what you call it exactly. 
but we've talked to Paul and Dylan and the team about it over the years. And there's nothing more important than housing affordability and attainability for residents. And that vehicle in particular seems like a good part of that story. So we'd love to hear a bit about that strategy. So across all of our strategies, we've been an active investor in housing over the years. Structurally, we are undersupplied to housing. Doesn't feel like that's changing or can change over the near term or even over the long term. So it prevents or provides a pretty good backdrop to invest into. And we've done that in a number of different ways at different points of the market cycle. And what we learned over the years is that different parts of the housing market perform well at different parts of the economic cycle. At some point in time, you see a lot of rent growth and a lot of opportunity for value appreciation in the more luxury elements of the housing market. As you move on in an economic cycle, you might want to move downstream to a middle price point housing. And then at parts of the housing cycle like we're in today, more moderately priced housing performs pretty well. It stays well leased. It doesn't deal with a lot of concessionary environment because of the age of the product and doesn't necessarily complete with new supply. So it all complements each other really well. A real simple insight there led us to really value investing in housing with that, you know, in line with that structural supply demand imbalance. Right. One of the things that strikes us is you've been very successful executing on both ends of the spectrum in terms of housing here from class A luxury assets with sponsors that we, we've had on the podcast before and we know well, like the national development and Redgates of the world, but also more recently in workforce strategies, essential housing strategies. And it's really interesting to us. And, and while you're doing it for altruistic reasons, you're also doing it because it makes sense. It's a, it's a good investment at this point in the cycle. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you're thinking about that, that strategy. Yeah, great. So housing, broadly speaking, is a big priority for us as an investment strategy at the firm. I think just about every product we manage and every account we manage at the firm invests in some form of housing. And we do that through a, a broad range of, of access points. We develop it with the groups <laughs> yeah. like Redgate and National Development, a whole bunch of other- Develop it very well. Some great projects. Yeah, great projects. Things we're really proud to have been a part of, especially here in the Boston area, yeah. which, you're, which you're referencing in and uh, also around the country with some great development partners. It's a big part of what we do is provide equity capital to that. We also value investing in other parts of the housing market. The U.S. housing market is the last largest asset market in the world, right? So the opportunity set is just enormous. And so we've done that through a number of different places over the years. We've obviously invested in seniors housing. We invest in market rate housing in the cities, in the suburbs. We do it in high rises. We do it in low rises. We do it in garden style property. And more recently, we've found real opportunity to invest in more affordable housing. We broaden that definition to call it essential housing because it's not always capital A affordable. Right. Sometimes affordable housing is just naturally occurring affordable housing. And so what we're really interested in uh, when we think about the housing market is really interested in looking at the friction point between where supply and demand is where it's most pronounced. And then we look for ways to align our investment strategy with the underlying asset. Sometimes that means managing assets for occupancy, providing a safe and healthy place for tenants to live in where mm -hmm. they value the unit and they stay in occupancy for 10 or 20 years. And sometimes in places where we have a shorter term hold, where we actually have a sort of a value proposition where we'll reinvest in the assets and change the rent roll. We do it a whole bunch of different ways, uh, depending on the underlying asset. But these days, like I said, we're really focused on that alignment. And we think there's real opportunity, especially today, given that in almost every major city in the country, one of the largest issues is housing affordability. We think there's a, a better way today to align your interests as capital, as investors, with the other constituents that touch that asset, whether it's the tenants, the housing authorities, the not-for-profits, right. et cetera. Well said. That's, that's a great strategy. 
you should be proud of it. It's an important part of the market. It's an important part of the solution, obviously, with a crisis facing almost every region in the country. You know, we talked about partners briefly there, and we've been you know, observers of this, and we've worked with you and many of your partners together on different transactions and opportunities. You know, One thing that AEW has built a, a reputation for is just being a really good partner and sort of doing what you say you're going to do, being there for your operating partners and sponsors, times that are good and times that are challenging. But I'm thinking of groups like Solera, Montecito, Flagship on the MLB side. We mentioned a few on the multifamily side. You've been at AEW for 20 years now. How have you guys developed that reputation and sort of reliability as a partner? And then on the flip side, how do you select who you're going to work with? You get the call on almost every opportunity that's out there. Someone wants to to work with you guys and bring your capital into the fold. There's a lot of those opportunities. How do you screen your partners? Listen, partner selection is one of the most important things we do. You mentioned earlier that we're a research-based firm and we focus on the math. I mean, ultimately, what we focus on more than anything is the people and the relationships we form. And we take really, really great care to try to protect those relationships at all costs. And you mentioned one of our local relationships here. Those relationships we did deals with here, we probably had a courting period of five or six years before we actually yeah. did deal with those groups. And then once we did, we found that we were collectively good partners together and we've done a lot of repeat business with each other over the years. You could repeat that story across every market in the country where we really value longstanding and deep relationships. It's interesting. We're, we're at a point where for a while there, the sponsors had a laundry list of LPs looking to do deals with them that were they were courting the sponsor. Now it seems with the market where it is, where liquidity is a little bit tougher to come across and and the equity pool is a little bit shallower, we're seeing the opposite where sponsors, best in class sponsors, at least on the multifamily side, they're having a tough time finding those LP and attracting that capital. So it seems there's been a bit of a paradigm shift where for a long time you were trying to win their approval. Now it's it's a bit more the developers are are trying to win over some of the LPs, which we've been watching closely. And for a long time, there were sponsors in this market who wouldn't call a broker like Mike or I to help them find equity. We're getting a lot of calls these days from those groups. It's a cyclical business. I think if you've been doing this business long enough, you learn to avoid some of the extremes. You understand when sponsors have lots of capital opportunities out there and you do the best to understand the pressures they're facing and what they're trying to accomplish. And in times like this, when capital is more dear, you try to remember that it won't always be the most mm-hmm. dear commodity and, and you try to do right by your relationships. And that's what we're doing here. You've established yourselves as a gold standard in terms of a capital partner, which is something that I think serves you well in all parts of the cycle. One tagline you have on your website, which we appreciate is leadership with deep experience across market cycles. You just mentioned it's being a cyclical business. No one can debate that today. Talk to us a little bit about lessons that you've learned over the years. And I think there's sort of an intrinsic institutional view at AEW that, hey, we've sort of seen some variation of this before. We're going to do our best to prepare for it. And then we're going to start looking for opportunities. So from your elevated view today at AEW, you started out as an acquisitions analyst. Today, you're you're overseeing the North America's investment business. It's a significant role today. So how are you steering the ship with your teams? That's a big question. These are complicated markets that we're in today. Sometimes it's harder to do nothing than it is to do something. And so we're doing our best to be really patient today. We're trying to avoid some of those extremes and we're trying to be aware of the absolutes. You can't open up a newspaper without hearing that office is dead forever, right? And it certainly has its challenges probably over the near term, but nothing is absolute. We're trying to manage with that in mind. We are deploying capital, but carefully. And we're really taking care of, of our existing book, right? We're, we're, in, we're investing a lot of time in asset managing our assets. 
We have an enormous portfolio here in the U.S. across a whole bunch of different strategies. And so that's where our focus is today. We've heard good reports from some of our colleagues around the country. AEW is active, been a great buyer and a disciplined buyer, but have performed really well. Particularly our, our seniors housing team, Chad Lavender and Ryan McConaughey are big fans. So we appreciate that very much. Can we talk about culture a little bit at AEW? You've been there 20 years. You're now the leader of the organization here in North America. One of the things we're always struck by is the tenure of employees. And, and Mike and I have had a lot of friends who have gone through AEW. We've had a lot of friends who have gone there and stuck around for quite a long time. And I think it comes down to culture. So I'd love to hear about how you think about culture there and then how you foster that environment. He's the best. He's great. Listen, you don't stay at a place 20 years if you don't value the culture you're in. Right? And I think you're right to point out the tenure and the retention we've had over the years. It's just been phenomenal. I think that's for a number of reasons. The first thing is it's just a really great place to work in terms of opportunity. Through all parts of the market cycle, I've always found that we're doing something really interesting, right? It's in our DNA to be creative, to be innovative, to develop new products, to try new strategies. And by definition, that creates an energizing environment to be a part of. There's always something new to think about and work on at the company. And I think that really speaks to a lot of people. And when you get under the hood and when you feel a part of that, it's really hard to leave. So I think that's a great place, a great starting point. I think the other part of the company, it was really set from the leadership that we've had over the last 20 years from people like Bob Plum and Pam Herbst and Mark Davidson and Jeff Ferber and Jay Finnegan and the whole list of them is that we've really, uh, they, and now my generation and my partners at AW get to carry on the legacy of really valuing the people, understanding that people have lives outside of work, trying to reward and create an environment that you get out of it, what you put into it. And so reward people that really commit themselves to it completely, but create a, a fun place to go to work every day. It starts with the office space. It starts with some flexibility. It starts with a really energizing and rewarding place to work. I don't think it's that complicated, but I think you need to keep working at it to make it right. Yeah. And you guys have been known for investing in the workplace. You know, you've always had great space. I think it encourages people to be in the office and be collaborative well before, you know, the whole work from home paradigm was, was really taking hold. You just went through an office renovation, I think, recently, you know, a redo, which it seemed to come quick because it seemed like you guys had moved to the seaport. That was a great space. And then uh, you recognize the need to reinvest in it, which is great. I think when every time we're over there, we're struck by the number of people sort of, you have a cool lunchroom. People are always working around and getting together Mike's always thinking lunch. about food. So the lunchroom yeah, was comes the first thing that came to mind. Great dining. That's at our AW. core competency, you say, is our. Is <laughs> I the always, food. I'm always happy to go over there and sit down with Mark Morrison or Jen or anyone. You guys have done a great job, and then obviously it's been a focus of of maintaining a workplace that that is active and alive, and and I think uh, there's there's some fun that goes on too. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, listen, culture and our business is not a set it and forget it kind of thing, and there's so many things today that are influencing and changing our business, from people management to ESG to technology and how we deploy technology to growing regulation. All of those things influence culture in different ways and touch it in different ways. So if you're not paying attention to your environment and your people and how you all work together, then I think you're missing the big picture. So we do pay a lot of attention to things like that. Our space wasn't terrible. At 20 years, it held up pretty well, but it didn't exactly fit the way we were conducting our business anymore. And we thought it was time for a refresh. The interesting part of it was that we actually demoed this piece, the space two weeks before COVID sent us all home for a year. So the blessing was that we got to conduct a renovation while everybody was home anyway. The curse was we had to imagine the future of office space over about two weeks before we sent our contractors to yeah, do the work. It live. So we didn't give ourselves a lot of room for error there, but it's yeah. been great to bring people back to the new space. Awesome. That's great. We want to go back to Mike Byrne a little bit. 
and just your role at AEW. We've talked a lot about the organization, how it's grown, how it's changed, you know, how you've installed such great culture. But we remember you, and we haven't been around all that long, but we remember you as a deal guy looking at deals on a daily basis. Now you're, again, sitting at the top of that organization here in North America. What's your day-to-day like at AEW? What are you focused on? And then we'd love to hear a little bit about, we know you sit on the investment committee, how that process works at AEW. We think folks really like to hear about those things. Sure. I mean, I can give you my perspective. It should be clear that, I mean, I have a sort of oversight responsibility of what we do in North America, but it's a team approach to how we manage the business, whether that's our investment committee or our senior leadership team. Nothing's done in absolutes with a singular person. It's all committee-based at AW. It's been part of our culture for a long time. So you guys all know yeah. the names of people here in this yep. town, so I don't need yep. to list them all, but we have a great senior leadership team that's that's really committed and involved. But so yeah, I started out as an acquisition person, spent a lot of time doing deals, covered the Boston market, mm-hmm. which was a great training ground for me. I've had, other than that, probably every job you can have at AEW over the, over the years. You can't spend 20 years there without doing <laughs> a whole bunch of different jobs. But my next step at AEW was to be a separate account portfolio manager on behalf of a, a public pension plan out of the Western half of the United States. I did that for a few years, which was a transitional account that's now a really important, stable core account for us. And from a portfolio management standpoint, we've observed your portfolio team is hands-on in a really good way. There's some places where maybe the you wait for a report back from your partner and to hear how things are going. I think it's the opposite in AW in a very healthy manner, and I think your partners appreciate it. It seems like every step along the way the AW team is providing support and research and data and opinions on each asset and each decision, which has been great. And we work closely with James and Cassie and Mark on some of the medical office properties, and they know what's going on at all times, which is much better probably than getting a monthly update. That's really great to hear. I'm not surprised. We're really invested. One of our taglines is that we're invested in every square foot. And so it's a new thing for us, but I think being invested is a core value of ours. People are invested in their job every day. We're invested in the task in hand, the people we work with. So it's not surprising to hear that in your experience with our MOB team has been good. We take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. And for you personally, you had a really productive career when you were sort of on the ground as an in acquisitions role. Any deals or acquisitions or projects that stick out to you is especially memorable for good reasons or different reasons. But you've been through a number of cycles here, but also been involved in some, some really spectacular successes for AW and their clients. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about this on the way over here today. There's a great story probably in this deal, which was, we say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. And uh, it certainly feels like the market today is is rhyming with what we saw after the financial crisis. There's a lot of things that are very different about it, but there's elements of it that are the same. One of the more transformative transactions we've done over the years at the time was 2010. We invested, I should take a step back and say that uh, there was a, a publicly traded company based in Florida called Florida East Coast Industries that was taken private. That was a big thing mm-hmm. in 2006 and seven. It was breaking private by a big New York-based private equity firm where they borrowed a lot of money from Money Center Bank and um, performed the acquisition and then the world fell apart on them. And so there was a need to refinance and recapitalize the company. And we invested in a structured debt deal. So it was a mezzanine loan and a subordinate loan, unsecured, in a pool of Florida-based assets. It was a large deal. It was probably 250 or $3 million of mezzanine debt outside of the rest of the capitalization. But anyway, that deal ultimately provided a lot of future deals for us. We developed a really great relationship with the management team that was in place where they were just trying to recapitalize and stabilize their business. We made a really good investment for our clients making returns on a debt deal then that probably looked like where you'd make returns mm. today. 
But what was really interesting about that deal, either through the relationship we formed with the operator or just through the rights we negotiated in the document, we've had a number of subsequent acquisitions. We bought a 7 million square foot industrial portfolio in Miami, Florida, which is probably still the largest and most relevant industrial portfolio in that city. Yeah. Wow. Maybe in any city. That's a big boy. We've since bought and sold a couple million square foot suburban office park in Orlando. These are all in our in one of our core strategies and performance has been really good in all of those. But what's most interesting about this, you know, you forge the best relationships of time of fire. The management team we got to know there, we got to think or see the way they think over the years. And what they really developed an understanding for in that market was the temperature control warehouse space. And they've since sort of a lot of that management team has left and they, they recreated their own business where they were investing in temperature controlled warehouses and cold storage buildings and more recently, we actually acquired that business because we believe in what they were doing and we believe in that space. Is that unique for AEW to buy an operating business? Yeah. I mean, we've never done that before, as far as I know. And, and so I shouldn't say we've bought operating businesses in our strategies over the years, probably mostly focused in our opportunistic strategies, but it's unique for AEW capital management to do that with the goal of investing client capital right. into the space. And and in this case, we developed real conviction in a couple of things. One, we believe there's real demand in the temperature control warehouse space. Two, we developed real conviction in the operating platform and the team that was there. And we thought their skill set aligned with what we do really well, which is uh, you know thoughtful uh, capital management governance and investment strategy, research, all the other things that we bring to bear. That marriage with the operating platform and this cold storage operating platform was a was a powerful, powerful. That's software. incredible. So it's all rooted in a, in a mezzanine loan we made, you know, 15 years ago. I think it goes back to you guys being sort of fiercely protective of your reputation and you do what you say you're going to do and you're there for your partners. And obviously that's the best recipe for, for continued partnership. So it's probably emblematic of the AEW way, you know, in all sectors, but from a platform standpoint, so that's a platform investment. Is that focused on development deals? Are you buying existing cold storage assets in that partnership? In that scenario, I'm careful about how we describe cold storage. The market accepts cold storage as being effectively public refrigerated warehouses, like a lineage in Americold are the names everybody yeah. knows, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of them. There yeah. are a lot of local companies here too that do that, where they act as a public warehouser for customers on a contract basis, not a lease basis. Our strategy is a little bit different and the opportunity that our team is focused on is really about temperature control warehouses more broadly defined. And it's really about customers that are slightly different. They're food distribution companies, they're grocery stores, they're flower distributors, usually focused in space that they can control more directly where they actually lease the space from us. So, so we're not actively operating as public warehousers. Okay, got and it. so our, our belief there is that that industry has been starved of capital for about 40 years. There's been no new development since the average vintage, I think, is 1986 in terms of temperature control warehouses. And I got to think the COVID vaccine and its need to be refrigerated led to a lot of interest in that supply chain and, and the cold storage industry. Yeah, it, it, it didn't change our strategy or our interest, but it certainly helped right. capital Capital uh, got it quicker. Focus on it and yeah. understand it a little better. Understood. Yeah. If you sit on the front stoop at our house, you'll see packages come that all seem to be cold and refrigerated and need to be refrigerated pretty soon. So uh, I think we're helping support the trend. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> Three little boys will do. Yeah. Also for the listeners, I'm going to keep track of how many times my brother uses the line, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. I think that's a great line. I love that. And I can envision Mike sending several emails to folks with, with that. I, we'll keep I, track I, for in you. In fairness, I stole it from Mike Acton, and I think he stole it from Mark Twain. Yeah, so, exactly. So. There's no original thought there. <laughs> Three mics. I like it. 
So should we uh, focus a little bit on Mike Byrne, the person? Maybe we move away from uh, AEW and your illustrious career, but we love in these interviews to talk about who you are as a person, kind of how you go about your daily life. And we'd love to hear just from the start, what, what's your routine like? What are you reading in the morning? How are you getting ready for the day? And, and how does your day go? It's probably not all that interesting, but I'm up real early. I'm trying to be at the office. For 20 years, I tried to beat Bob Plum to the office and I never <laughs> succeeded. And now there's a, I won't say him by name, but there's a young guy that tries to beat me to the office every day, which is kind of fun to see. <laughs> I love it. But otherwise, I'm, I try to be in the office pretty early. I shouldn't say this out loud, but I probably spend too much time on my phone in the car on the way to work, uh, sending messages yes, do in, in traffic. I mean, listen, I'm fully invested in the job at hand. You have to be to do what we all do every day. So... I spend a lot of time in the office if I'm not traveling. And these days we're spending a lot of time traveling, seeing our relationships, seeing yeah. our customers, seeing our clients, raising capital, that sort of thing. And where are you getting your data? You have a, a wealth of data that's available to you through the AW channels, but sort of where are you getting your information on it on a regular basis? Yeah, there's no lack of information in the world today. So we have a unique amount of resources, whether it's real estate specific data. We have proprietary tools that we use internally that look at our own portfolio. We subscribe to every sort of industry tool that you can subscribe to. There's a lot of them and they're not There's cheap either. Yeah. So, and then some of the most, at least in you know the world that we live in today, some of the, some of the most relevant information is just what you see on the wallstreetjournal.com and right yeah. and the news sources that we all look at every day. So, and, and when you're on the road, you guys have different reasons for being on the road, probably doing a little less road travel to look at a specific deal, but probably going to meet with your capital partners and the sources of the equity. Globally, how are people feeling today? If you go travel you know, to, to visit one of your clients, we see it on the ground. We have a feel for what's going on, but how are the major allocators? You know, sort of what's the temperature? And is that different for different groups based on where they are in the world? The US and Boston still seems like a pretty safe place, all things considered. I think we all uh take for granted how great a place Boston is to, to live and work these days. It's, uh, it's, it feels great. In terms of capital flows and capital allocation decisions that are happening, it certainly is a more bifurcated world today than it was a couple of years ago. In the U.S., most of our pension plans are dealing with a denominator issue. If you're, if you're asking specifically about real estate, you've seen valuations adjust across all investable asset classes outside of private assets, private equity and private real estate. So that's obviously constraining interest in deploying capital into the space over the short term. Over the short term, I would say that most of the interest around new capital today is either waiting for core real estate to reprice, and it will invest in that like it has always done cyclically, and otherwise is looking for opportunities to take advantage of the distress that we all feel is, is either coming or already here through opportunistic strategies. And then sort of step back from there, I think the, the biggest and most overwhelming opportunity at hand that most domestic capital allocators see is around the capital void that exists in real estate today and, and providing debt strategies towards that. Yeah. And, and, and so, the debt uh, strategies, is that an area of expanction? Oh yeah. I mean, we've been investing in debt for more than a decade and it's certainly a place of focus today. Most of the active deals we're working on today are, are through the capital stack, either senior debt or senior subordinate debt. Right. And so we're doing that for sure. I and mean, we're doing that across all of our strategies. Tim Clinton's a good friend and I know he's in front of uh, our teams on all sorts of opportunities every day. I think he's a busy guy these yeah, days. for sure. So, and so you asked the question, I mean, I think globally, the picture is a little different around capital flows. There are places on the globe that has uh, is flush with capital and is looking to get invested. I think a number of my partners and I spent the last couple of weeks on the road, either in Europe or in the Middle East or in Asia. Mm -hmm. And the themes there are, are generally that capital is looking to get out of, maybe move away from some of the risk and equities and move towards real estate strategies and or fixed income strategies. 
And that's sort of the other big theme, I think, is that we're hearing people have less interest in Europe and are looking to deploy to cat the U.S. first and, and maybe Asia-Pacific second. In any geographic sense here domestically, have you shifted or are you getting a sense that we love to hear on these discussions that Boston is, because of our knowledge economy, we are well served in this current environment? Are you seeing any sort of concentration of capital to the Northeast to markets like Boston? Boston, if you limit Boston to its competitive set of gateway cities, it stands alone, I think, today as the most fundamentally solid gateway city that we see across the U.S. But I think a lot of the decision that capital allocators are making today is, are you going to underwrite a recovery in a place that's historically been really stable, or are you going to underwrite growth in a place that's where... That's a really good point. And I think there's still a fair amount of interest in places that are growing as, a place, as opposed to places that are recovering. And Boston has the unique position of being situated in a little bit of both today, where most of the other gateway cities don't. That makes total sense. I think we've been beneficiary of that on the transactional side, being on Newmark's capital markets team. I think we oftentimes are reminded that we are fortunate to spend a lot of time in this market. I work nationally and on medical office product. Luckily, that is a recession-resistant asset class by nature. AW is focused on a lot of these sort of alternative asset classes. We talked about temperature controlled, talked about seniors, MOB. The overseas accounts or overseas clients, are they that's something they easily gravitate towards or is that an education process, how you get your clients focused on alternative sectors? I think it depends on the investor. I would answer that question by saying that there isn't a conversation we have with, with an LP that doesn't focus on the growth of alternatives. Their comfort level with it varies quite a bit. But I think as, a, as an industry, we're all coming to terms with the fact that it's going to make up a larger portion of investors' real estate allocations. Probably fills the void for some of the pullback in demand for either retail or, or office property. We're still talking about pretty small sectors here, so it can't make up all of it, but probably fill some of that void. Great. And I know that just from knowing a lot of the your teammates and the younger folks at AW, you've been sort of a great beacon for a lot of people as they've developed their careers and grown. And, you know, 20 years, I'm sure, flew by in many ways. You know, what would you tell folks? You've been with AEW for a period of tremendous growth and great success on behalf of your clients. And even at the asset level, we can look out the window here and, and drive around the Boston market and see a lot of projects that really have changed the city that you guys have been the capital on. What, what do you tell the younger folks who are in career development mode and how they grow and keep their heads up for opportunities. There's so much opportunity for young people in the real estate industry today. I feel really fortunate to be at AEW where it's a great seat for a young person to come and work. You usually see young people in a hurry to, to get to their career and to get to a role in portfolio management or acquisitions, or at least on our side of the fence. But I think over the near term, a lot of the action is going to happen in asset management and taking the time to work in all elements of our business, whether it's capital raising or asset management or acquisitions or portfolio management, having a really well-rounded set of experiences and being in a little bit less of a hurry to get to the finish line is, is probably good advice. You know, I think the one thing that I always hope our younger people will do here is always just strive to be relevant in the job they're doing, be really focused on where they're adding value and to be prepared. I think it's really that easy. We have a culture at AW where a lot of our younger people come to meetings really, really prepared for, and it always surprises me around how good they are at that. So, And the diaspora of young folks who have started their careers at AW, a lot of them stayed there forever. And those that have moved on, are some of the best and brightest in the space. So it's a testament to the brand and the, and the culture. So one thing on, just as we look at the next year in the business, it is the end of March 23. We're in a time of series or a set of unique challenges. Like you said, they rhyme. You said you're being disciplined. I think that's probably the approach that you, you always take. But 
when you do identify areas of opportunity, you seem to go for them with with conviction. How do you see the next six to 12 months playing out in a macro world here? Pull out the crystal ball for this one. Yeah. I'm excited. You know, no two cycles are the same. So I think we need to understand the fact that there's going to be a new playbook for this cycle than the ones we've used in the past. So what we saw work so well in the previous cycle, which was kicking the can to another outcome or a better outcome, worked largely because we had interest rates that went to close to zero and there was a better tomorrow to kick the can towards, right? I think we believe that structurally the world still needs to come to terms with that there is a cost of capital again, that rates are going to stay structurally higher over the near term and that kicking the can may not work as well this time as it has in the past. And so I think we're optimistic about the nature and the condition of the fundamentals in the real estate market today. We've never moved into a downturn with fundamentals as solid as they are, save maybe the office market, but in the industrial market and the housing market, fundamentals are incredibly solid today. But it doesn't change the fact that when you move from 3% interest rates to 6% interest rates, your valuations and your deals need to be able to support that. And so I think we believe that there's room for continued distress to materialize and to continue to weigh on owners of assets. And I think that's probably here for a little while. And so with that as context, we're being pretty careful around deploying capital into new strategies today. We're focused on protecting the assets and the investments we have, providing capital to those key relationships that we've been talking about today selectively, and just being a little bit patient. That's great. And that's where you're being disciplined with your capital. One place, AEW, is not as disciplined as in your charitable giving. You can look on the website and see the list of organizations you support year after year. And, it, and it's a laundry list of some of the best in the city. United Way, Boston Children's Hospital, the YMCA, Best Buddies, Mass Housing. You know, we love hearing about giving back and being a community partner. And AEW is a perfect example of that. And you are a perfect example of that. We'd love to hear how you think about giving back and, and community engagement and how that's a, a core part of your business. I mean, it should be a, a core part of all of our, our businesses and it, definitely a focus of ours. I haven't mentioned John Martin yet, but John Martin is our North American CEO and it's an important cause for him and specifically how we can hone the resources of AW and direct them towards specific causes. So we've built a team internally just focused on that, really expanded our, our commitment to the space. And I think you'll see us continuing to do that in the future. I think it's a really important part of, of our firm. What's great about AEW is as a firm, you're very active from a philanthropic standpoint, but also the, the individuals from AW are stepping up on committees and causes across the city every night. So I think you guys have representation at almost every event there is out there, which is which is noticed by the market. Yeah, I don't think there's a an industry organization that Lauren O'Neill or Sarah Cassidy haven't been the president yeah, of yeah, recently. Yeah, so. Lauren and Sarah are awesome. Both I don't, I don't think there's an event that Mary Kay Cruz hasn't been to <laughs> yeah. over the years either. <laughs> Lauren and Sarah too, and when, when they you know each made their moves over to AW. You sort of saw how excited the market was for them. Uh, I think it, it spoke to not only both of them as professionals, but also the market just said, you know, what a great place you're going to and, and you're going to be able to make a serious impact. And they're both perfect fits over there. We're excited for that. The really exciting thing for us at AEW has been the addition of people like Lauren and Sarah. I'll stop the names there, but there are many, many others that have joined and made serious contributions to the firm at a senior level. What's been really exciting to watch is to marry that with the long tenure we've had from the rest of the team and how that's all gelled so well over the last couple of years. It's been really great. Yeah. And maintaining identity and culture. You guys have been really good at doing that through, again, a period of, of tremendous growth and success. So this has been a great conversation. We hope you'll come back again sometime because we think there's more to talk about. But I want to hear about your 26 penalty minutes, your senior year at Dartmouth. We just just checked hockey DB and you know there's a few infractions there. So 
on the next episode. We'll talk to right. that. As long as you don't ask me about my freshman stat line, which was seven goals and zero assists. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Oh, man, my my, my six-year-old son would like that, though. He's, I'm trying to get him going on the uh, moving the puck <laughs> in the basketball. You know, we have a tremendous partnership with AW here at Newmark. We're so appreciative of our, of our friendships with all your professionals and, and your teammates, but across really every asset class and the on the equity side of the business and the debt side of the business. It's just a really productive relationship. And we're very excited to continue that and to grow it. You've been right at the helm uh, the whole time. We're deeply appreciative of it and uh, look forward to continuing that momentum. Same here. Our relationship with Newmark is incredibly important to us. It starts with the two of you and the rest of the team, and we hope to do a lot more with you guys. That's great. And thanks for your time. We know you're super busy these days, so, so spending an hour or so with us is greatly appreciated. We'll, we were we'll just, do it again soon. We were getting asked all the time when Mike Byrne was going to come on. So yeah. We got to make sure we're talking about the AEW, Mike yeah. Byrne, and not the Yeah, we didn't cover that. My, my partner on the multifamily side, Mike Byrne and... Mike Byrne here at AEW share a first and a last name, obviously. But the number of times a year where Mike Byrne from Newmark inadvertently gets an email sent to Mike Byrne from AEW is, it's got to be dozens. There's no secrets be between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> so. well, well, thanks so much. We thank really you, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Have a awesome. good one. Great. Thanks. Thanks.